Welcome to Antitrust Code by Concurrence. Concurrence is the leading antitrust database with over 30,000 articles on competition law. Concurrence is also the largest network of antitrust experts with lawyers, economists, enforcers, and academics in 85 countries. By listening to this podcast, you will learn the fundamentals of competition law and hear about the latest antitrust news thanks to our guests, the best experts in the antitrust world. Hello and welcome to this Concurrence Antitrust Digital Podcast. This podcast is supported by Facebook. I'm Jennifer Baker, a tech policy journalist in the EU, and today I'm going to be talking to Marco Iancitti, who is a Harvard Business School professor, uh, the David Sarnoff Professor of Business Administration and co-chair of the Digital Initiative. He's an expert on digital innovation and transformation, focusing on strategy, business models, and new product development in high-tech industries. So today we're going to talk about assessing the strength of network effects in social network platforms. We've all heard about network effects and they've risen to the fore very much in recent years because of the online presence. Things like vectors, volume and velocity have all got to be taken into account in our new digital age. So we're going to look at that. We're going to look a little bit back at the uh, old fashioned way of looking at network effects, as well as looking ahead at what Marco thinks is going to be changing in the future. So, Marco, thank you very much for joining me today. It's lovely to have you here. Thank you so much, Jennifer. It's a pleasure. Um, before we get into, um, you know, the detail of what you, your study uh, shows, tell me a bit what drew you to this in the first place. I, as, as I mentioned, the online age seems to have brought network effects to the fore again, but what was it specifically that made you feel now was the time to tackle it? I think we live in a pretty interesting time where more and more companies, more and more businesses are increasingly digital as they work. Their operating model, as we call it, so which really defines the way the business works, is based on software. It's based on data. It's based on analytics. And it starts to look very different from your traditional organization. And so what happens when a company is increasingly based on software is that uh, it opens up interfaces. Like software is very easy to interface to other software, the internet, and we have all these fantastic networks that are built out around companies and around organizations that really drive, uh, in many ways, the way that different companies interact with each other. And so there's a whole sort of new science, if you like, or new economics of networks that becomes really important to understanding how the companies actually operate and how to do their daily business. I mean, with that in mind, of course, it's really all about the data. If you've got the people, you've got the data behind them and the data that they generate. And this is something that we're seeing in Europe, increasingly a, a move over the last year or two to sort of start considering data in terms of competition value. Is that something you're seeing worldwide? Is that something you see in the US? Yeah, it's pretty much everywhere these days. I think that traditionally companies have had what we call product value. So when you introduce a product, a product as a function, it does something for a consumer, uh, it differentiates from other products, it creates some form of value that consumers take. Like, for example, when you drive a car, there is a value actually being driven around. When the product is increasingly digital, there are two other dimensions, two other vectors, if you like, that open up. Uh, one of them is data value. So as the product does things, it accumulates data. And that data is valuable for a variety of different things and improves the value that the product itself can deliver to the consumer. 
And also there's a third vector, which is really network value, because as software easy to connect, many of these products, not all, but some of, those, some of the products out there that have a digital component are also valuable because they connect you to other people or to other things. And so that network itself is valuable. And it goes back to, I mean, old traditional things like, you know, a fax machine or a phone network uh, is valuable because it connects you to other uh, people. In the same way, a digital business will connect you to um, a variety of other constituents, users, social network participants, what have you. And that network itself has value. And so product value, data value, network value, uh, that's kind of how you think about a digital business. And interestingly, it's not about just the latest digital native companies anymore. Virtually any company will today drive a business model with these three different dimensions. Uh, we've seen this in the medical sector. We've seen them in the banking sector. We've seen this in, in, even in the automotive sector, right? And, uh, and so it's, it's quite interesting in how traditional businesses now are very different in how they're starting to, to add and, and create value. Well, you've sort of preempted my next question, which was going to ask you to define in the sort of simplest way for a lay listener, what you mean by network effect. Yeah, no, a network effect is any product or any asset, if you like, that appreciates in value as more people or more things are connected to it. That's really all it is. And, and there's a variety of things that, that do that. Okay, well, let's talk a little bit about some of the points that you raised in your paper. You say that the more tightly mm. clustered a network is, the more and the more segregated these clusters are from each other, the easier it is for competitors to enter the market. Explain what you mean by that. What's, what's tightly clustered and segregated? Because it's, these sure. two things must be prized apart in order to, to really get to the nature of where the competition comes in. Of course, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll back up for one second and sort of like the original theory of network effects that goes back a long time and, and sometimes known as uh, Metcalfe's law, which is sort of essentially an engineering law back from networks, is the fact that as the network gets bigger, the value of that network increases. And in many traditional models, there is a very rapid increase. Uh, there is a, what you would call really a convex curve, which means that it, it you know, sort of the more uh, you go, uh, the more the curve increases. And it's sort of the, kind of like this exploding value uh, that the network has that uh, so, sort of gets larger and larger and larger as it gets bigger. Now, the reality is much more complicated than that. The reality is that there are many systems that grow in value as they get more and more connected. But that growth is not this, this huge sort of exponential crazy thing. It really depends uh, on how the network delivers value to people. Like, for example, if you think about a, uh, uh, a drive sharing, uh, uh, ride sharing network, like you know Uber, Lyft, uh, whatever, um, that network is what I would call clustered in the sense that as a consumer, you only get value from that network uh, as long as you have a density of cars in your own individual local area. Like right now, I'm in Boston, and if I want to hail an Uber, I only care about how many cars there are in the local proximity of where I am. I don't care about how many cars might be available in San Francisco or in London right. or anywhere else, even just a few miles away from me. And so that's a cluster network because it only adds value. It only increases in value up to a point uh, because my own, so the way that I use the network is dependent on having this local density. 
local density of cars. Uh, and um, in, in another example of this uh, is social networks. Uh, and, uh, you know, social networks, people, uh, if you look at um, uh, how people use social networks, they're usually an example of what people call it a small worlds network which is that you connect to your friends, you connect to people that you know, you connect people that you share something with, you share an interest with, you share a passion with, but you don't connect to everybody. You don't care if there are a billion people or you know, a trillion people on the network, you care the fact that there is 20 people on the network that you actually care about because they love music or they're your family members or they went to college with you or whatever it is. And so these kinds of networks are highly clustered, not by geography, like mm-hmm. Uber and Lyft, but by interest groups, by various affinity groups. And, uh, and so the traditional sort of uh, stereotype of a network that just increases in value as more and more people join, it's just not true for these kinds of cluster networks. And then what do we mean by these segregated clusters? So you mean that they're not flowing into each other one to another, that, you know, San Francisco people talk to people in San Francisco and London people talk to people in London and they don't connect? Yeah, the reality is that it depends, right? It depends very much on the network. And that's actually one of the things that I find that so cool about this thing is that you really have to study it. Like you have to research it, you have to understand it. And the specific characteristics of the network matter. But in general, for a social network uh, like Facebook, for example, there is a bunch of different sort of uh, clustered groups. Like I have a circle of friends around Harvard Business School, for example. I have another circle of friends around where I went to college or high school or whatever it is. And I have all these individual groups uh, that I care about. But 99.9999% of people on Facebook, I, I don't care about in the same way. And in the same way... Uh, and so the networks are not tightly connected, as you think. So the, they're segregated in the sense that the groups are loosely connected to each other, if you like. There's yeah. a few connections that might come across. Like I might have, maybe there's one person in India that I connect with, but you know, there is a lot more people in India than that. And I don't connect with them and we don't share as messages and affinity. And so they don't really add value to my experience. Well, now that's that's sort of the direct effects, if you like, the network effects. I mean, there's also indirect network effects because of the other, the access to the the market that you might be able to provide as a social network. So things like advertising. I know you didn't look specifically at this, but this is, I think, one of the reasons that people are concerned about network effects from a competition angle. Yeah, no, so there's direct network effects, right, which is like uh, the sort of direct value that the individual users add to a social network. And then there is an indirect network effect, like for example, gaming providers, right? Uh, And so I go to Facebook because I like to play uh, certain games. And from that perspective, the more gaming providers I have, right? The more value Facebook can provide and the more value Facebook can provide, the more users (laughs) uh, join Facebook and then the more gaming providers uh, uh, join as well. The, the reality is, again, is a little more complicated, though. I wrote a paper with uh, Feng Zhu uh, back in 2012, where we studied the gaming industry, for example. And I should say Feng gets all the credit because it really did all the work <laughs> for that paper. But the gaming industry is interesting. And it's, you know, it's, for example, it's really built around a relatively small number of very popular games. It's, it's very much of a sort of feast of famine kind of business, right? So you had the blockbuster games and then everybody else. And uh, it's really defined by relatively small um, 
group of gaming providers. And that means that, again, that network is clustered, right? So you don't need to have a million different providers for me to find the game that I like. Uh, it's a much narrower group. It's a little bit the, like the difference, say, between uh, YouTube and Netflix, for example, right? YouTube is actually an interesting example where the network, indirect network effect are very strong because you have many, 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 many uh, video producers, right? And there's very long tail and people consume videos for a whole variety of different things from a whole different variety of people. Uh, Netflix uh, is much more like a gaming industry where you have uh, really a narrow, relatively narrow range of content providers uh, much of that provided by Netflix itself, mm -hmm. right? That really drives the experience. And so it's a much smaller network and, and it, that means that the network effects themselves saturate pretty quickly as you get enough network providers to provide an engaging experience for the users. Okay, well, another term that comes up quite a lot is homing and multi-homing. Explain to us what you mean by that and how that alters what we may think of in competition terms about the market. Sure. I mean, multi-homing essentially means alternatives, right? And having an alternative and, and switching back and forth between alternatives. Like, for example, having access to both Uber and Lyft and switching back and forth uh, between uh, the providers. Uh, and a lot of people have both apps uh, on their phones. And sometimes they even compare times in, in uh, uh, the drivers as well, uh, quote-unquote multi-home and look at both apps uh, and figure out which one they're going to get a better deal from. And so uh, the more you have multi-homing, the more you have alternatives, the more you have competition. In social networks, uh, as, as an example, uh, there's a lot of multi-homing. I mean, there's so many different alternatives and people switch back and forth across lots and lots of different kinds of uh, uh, options. And it, it's, it's funny, like, for example, you know, my kids, uh, uh, they have, you know, the certain networks in which they kind of can connect with, uh, you know, their dad and, and there are other networks in which they connect with their friends. And they certainly don't want to have anything to do with, with uh, you know, anything across those two networks. And they will use different platforms like, you know, Facebook, Snapchat, uh, whatever. Well, isn't one of the big issues we're facing at the moment, I mean, as you say that about market definition, then that's particularly challenging when you have got big platforms that do multiple different things. So we can compare, if you like, Uber and Lyft, because they're like with like, but sometimes it gets a bit complicated. And we're almost comparing apples and pears. Um, you know, so if we say Facebook is only about social connection, then that's one definition of a market. But it's also got a marketplace. It's also got a chat function. It's also got a, uh, you know, an advertising function. Uh, how do you get into that in terms of competition law? You know, that's a very good point. So the, the, the challenge that we have right now, right, uh, is, is a very broad challenge because as businesses become more digital, right, their interfaces make it very easy for them to connect with other businesses, with users, with other complementers. And so, uh, frankly, almost every large business these days is a platform business, right? Uh, and uh, I think Marshall Van Alstine um, uh, has done some research that shows that something over 50% of large enterprises have APIs, have interfaces, right? And across financial services, across uh, uh, medical devices, what have you, right? And so every time you have these interfaces, you open up uh, to additional business opportunities. 
And so the reality is that the world is getting very confusing and it's very difficult to isolate the impact of uh, a company in the sense that the whole business model for many, many uh, companies are, are cuts across industries. And so the traditional concept of industry, I think is very much outdated. Like th there is no such thing anymore as in some ways as the, I don't know, the car industry, if you like, because it's so connected to so many different things are, are you know, Uber and uh, General Motors in the same industry. Well, they're very different kinds of companies, but they certainly compete in different ways. Now, at the same time, the concept of market, I think it's still pretty well defined, right? So you still have a bunch of individual markets that these firms compete in. And so when you have a multi-sided platform, that platform will compete in a number of different markets. The market by itself can be well-defined. However, as you think about competitive uh, implications of what a platform does, you look across the different markets and you see if any of them individually uh, are problematic. Okay, well, I think, yeah, I mean, as you, you mentioned <laughs> Uber again, and they've had a lot of battles trying to define whether or not they're a tech company or a taxi company. And uh, well, I'll leave that to the judges to decide. Well, I mean, as a comment on this, I mean, again, there are so many different issues, right? So in some ways, so antitrust is one, uh, you know, is one thing that we should be worried about uh, with regards to these organizations. Uh, but there's many other issues. And with Uber, there's a whole range of things around sort of, uh, you know, employee rights and, and, and so forth that uh, are incredibly important. And so the amount of social change that's going on in these platforms is huge. Well, I wanted to ask you, I mean, in terms of studying it, you mentioned, I think already, the difficulty in getting empirical evidence. I mean, how big a challenge is that? It's hard. Uh, it's very difficult. Um, and, uh, but again, as one defines the problem uh, in a narrow way, uh, you can get data, you can analyze it. It's very difficult to look at, say, a company like Google and say, how does Google compete as a whole? I mean, there's so many different businesses, so many different markets. Uh, even if you look at Android as one thing, it's complex uh, because it has all these different sides of the market or any kind of digital business. And uh, at the same time, you can take any one of these individual markets and analyze it individually. Now, what Android does in one market will relate to what Android does in the other market. There are cross elasticities, for example, that will cut across. But essentially, if you break it down, uh, you can analyze it and start working your way through. But the important thing to remember is that this is true for all kinds of businesses. Take um, uh, a company called Intuitive uh, Surgical. Uh, they do uh, robotics, so digital robotics for surgery, right? And they compete in a variety of different markets as well. They're a platform, like the, the robotic uh, technology uh, is, is a complex system that has multiple different sides. One side is the surgeons, one side is the hospital providers, one side is the insurance providers, and so on and so forth. And in the same way, they also have all these individual uh, uh, sort of sides that one has to think about as you analyze what, what the system does. Okay, well, a final sort of a, a, a question that's, that's really from, a, again, a lay point of view, and that's about the business models, because we've all heard the phrase, if it's free, you're the product, you know? I mean, do you think that holds true? And how does that complicate matters? Um, I mean, again, I suppose we're touching on the, the advertising, behavioral advertising sort of business model. I mean, how prevalent mm -hmm. is that? And how much does that make it difficult to assess network effects? 
Well, one of the things that we've known about platforms for a long time uh, is that uh, one can price different sides differently, right? And so uh, users can provide a lot of value to the platform. And so you price to attract the users or actually even more classic model is the developer side, right? In the old days uh, of, you know, Windows and antitrust and all that, right? The indirect network effects were the fact that uh, essentially Microsoft was attracting developers to the plat- platform. It was selling tools and, and uh, at a very uh, attractive price so that they would come in and build all these great products. Uh, and then those applications would provide value to consumers. And the consumers in that case would be paying, essentially subsidizing, if you like, the developers, but it's not a real subsidy in the sense that they're, the developers are adding value. And so the extent to which uh, the users uh, are adding value to the platform, uh, then it makes sense for the platform to uh, uh, sort of uh, get them to, uh, to come in for free and uh, you know, make money on a different side, like uh, advertising, for example. But, you know, no. <laughs> okay, well, I, I, to wrap up, I want you to look into your crystal ball. I mean, we're, you, we're talking about antitrust. You mentioned the, the old Microsoft case. Uh, you know, you alluded to the ongoing Android uh, investigation here in Europe. You've had the EU looking at that Facebook WhatsApp merger. Do you have any, and, you know, we even hear from things like the European Parliament's calls to break up Google, is how they phrase it. What, do you, what are your predictions for the future? Where do you think we're going to see points of conflict or points of change? Or do you think it will go down the road of some of these big, big tech corporations being forced to divest themselves of different arms? Or do you think there will be some more sort of lower level solution? I think we're at the beginning of a very different era, if you like, in, uh, in the history of business and the history of antitrust as a result. Right? Because I really do think that something fundamental is changing in how companies work. Right. The fact that the companies are no longer about individual, uh, well-defined, relatively independent product businesses or service businesses and have this huge complexity around networks and data has changed the way you design companies, has changed the way that managers manage companies. It changes for, for us at Harvard Business School. It's really complex because you have to teach uh, you know, up and coming managers in a very different way. Like they, they, they manage uh, very differently. I mean, it becomes a software business, it becomes a data business. Uh, and, and so it's, a, it's fundamentally a different world. And then from their perspective, I think antitrust is really going to change uh, in major ways. And antitrust is also just one of a variety of different um, ethical, legal uh, discussions that we're going to have about these companies. We have discussions around privacy. We have discussions around security. We have discussions around truth even, right, and uh, and news. And so it's really fundamentally a much more complex discussion. I I am usually not a huge believer in uh, just carving out pieces of companies, in the sense that uh, it's it's a relatively clear, easy to define remedy, right? But it's also not clear exactly what it does. Like you know, for example, if you break up, if you have a social network that has uh, you know two parts, right? Say uh, you've got uh, you know Facebook and you've got Instagram. Now, how different would it be if those two companies were to operate independently? as opposed to whether they are operating together, they still have exactly the same networks. They have this exactly the same network of facts. Uh, it's not clear to me that it actually changes fundamentally uh, anything about how the companies would actually compete. 
Um, and then you know, like, what are you going to do about intuitive surgical? And, and are you going to break them up too? Is, that gonna, is there a problem there that we need to solve? And one of the things that is important to think about, again, is that with rampant multi-homing, for example, right? If you have alternatives, there's actually a lot of competition. And even though some of these networks are very large, they don't depend on you know, billions of viewers to compete. So you can have a relatively small, nascent uh, startup that actually gets a lot of traction. Like, for example, look at how fast TikTok, you know, became popular and so on. And so it, it really depends, right? And so I, to me, the thing that's interesting is that there's really a whole model of thinking and research and with implications on all kinds of different ethical and legal challenges that I think we're kind of at the beginning of, right? They were trying to figure this out. And so from that perspective, as we do that, one of the things to think about is also really beginning to invent and develop new kinds of remedies, new kinds of approaches to uh, managing the challenges that some of these firms provide to society in a much broader fashion. Uh, One last comment, if I can, Uh, in some ways, like one of the most interesting uh, antitrust lessons to me over the last 20 years has been the rise, for example, of the open source community, right? We went through all these trials and tribulations around uh, Windows and antitrust uh, with Microsoft and so on. But the reality is at the end of the game, the thing that really controlled Windows, if you like, uh, was the open source community. I mean, Linux today is the most popular operating system in the world. It powers up most of the AI that anybody uses. It's across every organization. And that's entirely an open source uh, product. And it's fascinating in the sense that open source itself or the communities that build around software are a really interesting thing that I think in some ways the the whole um, antitrust community hasn't completely leveraged, right? So what is the best way to get a platform in check or make sure that what they're doing is right? Rather than having a few regulators here or there, it's much better to have 10,000 developers out there watching out for it. And, and that way you can actually get some scale and, and make some differences. So I think, so this is an example. I think there's all kinds of ways that, that remedies will evolve uh, and can evolve uh, well beyond what we've done in the past. And that's a really interesting area. Well, it is. It's an exciting time. And thank you very much, uh, Marco and Siti from Harvard Business School for giving us your insight into network effects. As we've said during the discussion, there are many, many other areas that we might want to talk about in terms of antitrust and competition, not least data protection law, AI, and all these new and emerging technologies. So please do stay with us on the Concurrence podcast. You listen to an episode of Antitrust Code by Concurrence. If you want to read more about this topic, check the Concurrence website where you can find all relevant articles. Follow us on Twitter at Competition Rules and join the Concurrence group on LinkedIn to receive updates on our next podcast. <laughs>